how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Hosea. Ten years after Amos preached in Bethel, or Bethel, another prophet came who was to be God's last prophet to the northern ten tribes of Israel, God's last word, his last warning, his last appeal, and it is, as I already indicated, a real contrast to Amos's prophecy. It's affection rather than accusation. It's wooing rather than warning tender rather than tough, mercy rather than justice, and this is God's final, final appeal before the ten tribes disappeared. So we pay very careful attention to it. And there is a key word which unlocks the whole prophecy. In Hebrews, in Hebrew, C-H-E-S-E-D, cheseth. You pronounce the C-H like the Scots pronounce loch. And this word is, there is no exact English equivalent. You see, we don't have the Bible, we have a translation of the Bible. And that has certain limits. And there are never quite the exact word equivalents to this word chesed in the Old Testament or agape in the New Testament. There isn't really an English word that communicates these unusual but very beautiful words. Let me try and fill it full of meaning. It is essentially a covenant word. It's not, um, it's not something you have for everybody. It's something you have for those with whom you have a covenant relationship. And the most common covenant relationship we have is marriage, but there are other covenant relationships which are mutually uh, committed so that there's a commitment in this word. It does mean love, but it has an awful lot of the word loyalty in it. And true love is not true love unless it is loyal. The other synonyms that are used in the Old Testament for it are loving kindness or faithfulness even. Faithfulness is used 60 times for this word in our English Bible. Kindness is used about nine or ten times. It means unswerving love, undying devotion. It means to be so committed to someone, you go on loving them, whatever happens. There is an old English word that used to be used but is not now called troth, T-R-O-T-H. The only surviving example of that word is betrothed. There's a commitment in it, there's a loyalty in it, and it may be very significant that that word has died because that kind of loyalty has died. And love is something without loyalty now, something you can enjoy for a bit with someone and then drop. That's not chesed, that's not covenant love. The opposite of this word is unfaithfulness. So in the marriage service, not in the registry office, but in a church marriage service, there are usually words like, keep thee only unto her or only unto him as long as ye both shall live. That's chesed, for better, for worse for richer, for poorer, doesn't matter. That's irrelevant to the commitment. Now, the whole relationship between God and Israel is a covenant love, 
and therefore a cheseth. Stay with it. There was a man in the north of England whose wife, shortly after their marriage, left him and lived a pretty sinful life, picked up disease, and uh, the friend of this husband said to him, why don't you divorce her? She doesn't care that much for you. Never work out. And he said, never speak to me like that about my wife. I love her and I will love her as long as there's breath in her body. And when she lay dying of the disease she'd picked up from a sinful life, his hands were held over her in prayer and he nursed her. That's Keseth. That's God's love. That's what Hosea had to communicate to these people who didn't care about God's love at all. So on Israel's side, the covenant meant loyalty to his commands. Obedience, that was their part of the covenant. His part was to look after them and to protect them and provide for them, but their part was to obey him. But what he was looking for was glad, eager obedience that wanted to live the way he wanted her to live, but that's what he didn't get. There is a group of Jews today who find delight in God's law. They're the happiest group of Jews I know and it's very interesting what they're called. They're called the Hasidim, spelt C-H-A-S-A-D-I-M and that's made up of chesed, those who delight in God's law, those who are happy to obey it, not to do it grudgingly as a duty, but who see it as a delight. The longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119, is all about someone who delights in God's law. It says it's great to have this. Well, that's quite an attitude, isn't it? The burden of Hosea's message is very simple. What's happened to our marriage, says the Lord? What's happened to our marriage? There is still cheseth on my side, but there's none on your side now. What went wrong? Simple message and it's torn out of the pain of unrequited love. That is perhaps the most painful experience in the world, to love someone and not have that love returned. To want to love them and help them and they won't have it. And I think maybe some of you have known that pain of unreturned love. Well, how could Hosea understand God's feelings so well? The answer is God taught him in the school of experience whose colours are black and blue. God often prepared a prophet through his marriage and gave him a personal experience of the feelings of God. For example, Jeremiah, God told Jeremiah, you must not marry, you must remain a bachelor because you have to tell Israel that God is now a bachelor, he doesn't have a wife anymore. And so Jeremiah had to learn from the loneliness of not having a wife how God was feeling without Israel and that became his message. Or take Ezekiel and we shall be looking at him shortly. Ezekiel was told, your wife is going to die and you must not weep. And through that experience, Ezekiel was to tell Israel, God has been bereaved of his wife. But Hosea had the most extraordinary instruction in God 
through an experience of marriage. I shared it with you when we looked at the Song of Songs, but let me run through it again. It's all in chapters 1 to 3, which are autobiographical. And uh, various expositions of Hosea have been given interesting titles. I've got two books on my shelf. One is called The Prophet and the Prostitute, and the other is called Love to the Loveless, which is a little phrase out of a hymn. But both those sum up perfectly what happened to this man. Again, scholars argue as to whether it's fact or fiction, whether the order of events is right, whether chapter 3 didn't come before chapter 1, whether Hosea knew what was happening beforehand or only realised afterwards what was happening. All these things are matters of discussion and frankly you can get really bogged down in what I think is speculation. Let's take it in its plainest, simplest meaning. He married a prostitute, they had three children, at least one of whom was not his and was somebody else's. She went back onto the streets, he had to go and find her, he brought her home, put her through a period of discipline when he didn't know her as wife and then courted her and started all over again and loved her. Those are the facts. And the names of the children are very interesting. There were three. The first was called Jezreel or Yezreel, which means God sows it. And the biggest problem he had with that child was discipline. A very rebellious, unruly child that had to be disciplined. The second child, which was a girl, the first was a boy, the second child was a girl and that child was called Loruhama, which means not pitied. And that child was a deprived child, didn't have love from the mother and uh, that was the problem with the second child. The third child was called Lo-Ami, which means not my people. This was the child that Hosea didn't father, she already had another man. And this child was disowned. And those three adjectives I've given you, disciplined, deprived, disowned, all summarise how God was dealing with his people Israel. The names of the children were so important. I haven't met any Christian parents who used any of those three names for their children. <laughs> and certainly not when we get to Isaiah, Maher Shalal Hashbad. I've never known a Christian couple. We love Bible names for our children, but uh, not these names. That's all in chapter 1 about the three children. Chapter 2 is about the wife. It's very interesting, there are three things about her, but she was reproached by her own children for what she was doing. Her own children said, you shouldn't be doing that, mummy. So even the children could see what was going wrong and she was punished, she was requited for her behaviour, but she was restored later. Those are the three R's for her, reproached, requited, restored. Chapter 3 is all about the husband and uh, there are three things told us about him in chapter 3, that's Hosea. First, that he was faithful to her, even when she was faithless to him. He was faithful to her, went looking for her after she left him with the children. Secondly, he was firm with her. And for a period he did not treat her as his wife. He brought her home but didn't share the bed with her for a period. 
and that was representative of the period of discipline in the exile that God was going to put the Jews through before he restored her. And then thirdly, he was feared. There was a healthy fear in the wife afterwards. So she trembled. She feared him. And that was not a phobia, not a terror, but it was a healthy fear that she had which would uh, bring respect and loyalty back into her life. Well now those are chapters 1 to 3, purely the story. From then on, chapters 4 to the end were into the message that grew out of that because God was able to say, now Hosea, you've got your message, now you're ready to go and tell Israel that's how I feel about her. And so we can summarise the message of Hosea. Again, it's made up of different sermons he preached, different prophecies he gave, all jumbled together, so it's not easy to analyse it. Nevertheless, we can put it together under various headings which give us the bones of it, as it were, and enable us to read it with understanding. Everything he says centres around these two headings, human unfaithfulness and divine faithfulness. It is the contrast between this cheseth and the very opposite in the people that forms the theme of his whole prophecy. God's controversy with Israel is this, his compassion for them comes out in this. Those are the two words that Hosea uses. God's, God has a controversy with Israel but he has compassion for them. This is God's problem. What do you do with the people that you love? but who are unfaithful to you. It's a real problem. So we have a mixture of divine justice and, and divine mercy again, but the emphasis is going to be down here. However, let's look at all this up here. This doesn't represent the amount of his prophecy, it's just that this side is more detailed than this. First of all, he does concentrate on seven sins of which they are really guilty. We can call them the seven deadly sins of Israel and show God's detailed knowledge of what is going on. Number one, infidelity. They have become unfaithful in their marriages as well as unfaithful to God and that invariably follows. They are guilty of harlotry. They're going after other gods like Hosea's wife went after other men. Secondly, they are guilty of independence. God's chosen government was in Jerusalem but they had created their own royal line. They had set up their own independent kingdom which is the essence of sin. We will not have you to rule over us, we will have our own kingdom. And they were in rebellion against God's chosen king in the south. So independence was a major sin, intrigue, there were lies and deceit and people were making treaties outside the people of God, getting unequally yoked with unbelievers. But there was a whole lot of conspiracy, people talking behind each other's backs, people going behind each other and making secret agreements, a lot of intrigue. Fourthly, idolatry. This golden calf of Samaria figures large in Hosea's prophecy, the bull was a symbol of fertility, still is. Next, ignorance. 
that when they should have known about God, they didn't. They couldn't be bothered to read their Bibles. They didn't want to know about God. I feel that's happening in our country. You know, we've had Christianity here for nearly 2,000 years and people don't want to know. As soon as a religious program comes on TV, thousands of sets switch off and you can see how they're fighting to keep religious interest on TV so often, often by cheapening it, I feel. But there's a very interesting little good program on uh, Sunday morning called The Good Book Guide. I hope you've seen some of that. It's, the Bible is being presented in a very popular way, but by someone who is breaking the commandments of God, who's living with a woman he's not married to. He's the one presenting the Bible to the nation. What a crazy mix-up world we're in when you can choose a man living in adultery or fornication rather in God's sight who's chosen to present the Word of God to people. But you see, it's very reminiscent of all this. Idolatry, ignorance, immorality, drunkenness was rife, promiscuity and violence. Those are the three things that Hosea picks out which was making it less and less safe for people to walk the streets at night in Israel. And finally, above all, ingratitude. I redeemed you and you're so ungrateful. There's no thanks in you. And in a series of pictures which would really stick in their minds, he says you're like mixed dough that's when you mix flour with olive oil just for cooking it. But if you leave it and you don't cook it, it goes rancid and it's horrible. He said, that's what you're like. He says, you're like a heated oven. Your passion's like a heated oven. He says, you're like an unturned cake that's getting all burnt on one side and it's uncooked on the other because they used to cook the cakes on the top of an iron sheet on the fire like a griddle. He said, you're like a fluttering dove trapped in a net. Vivid picture language. But then he accuses the four groups of people responsible for this condition. He says, the priests are the first ones responsible. They should know God and they don't. They should be telling the people about God and they don't. He said, the prophets... There were plenty of prophets in the northern part of Israel, but they were all false prophets telling people not to worry that God wouldn't do these dreadful things. That's what the people wanted to hear. And a false prophet always says, peace, peace, when there is no peace. See, false prophets say, don't worry, it may never happen. That's a false prophecy. There were plenty of prophets saying, thus saith the Lord, but just telling the people what the people wanted to hear. And I know I had to battle with this. I think the battle's over for me largely now, but you've got to be on your guard all the time. It is so easy for preachers to tell people what they want to hear, to want people to say, what a nice sermon, thank you so much. But God needs men who will tell the people what they don't want to hear. See? And it's costly to do that. There are plenty of prophets who are giving them what they wanted to hear. The princes, this royal line they'd set up, they also were responsible. And the other group that he singles out for particular condemnation are the profiteers who were making money out of real estate and who were making money at the loss of other people who were poorer. 
That's happening today. I think it's very doubtful if a Christian can be in money exchange, shifting millions around with the turns of the market. It is the poor who lose out every time. It's at the expense of the third world every time. In other words, when we gain money, there should be a fair exchange of goods or services in value so that both gain. But in fact, there's an awful lot of gain going on that is purely at others' losses and they don't get anything in return, making money, making money as it were. I just throw that out. This was what was happening here and Hosea singles them out as the corruptors of society. Now he says, suffering is coming to you. And he says, three particular sorts will come. First of all, barrenness. There'd be miscarriages. Women would not even conceive. They'd lose their babies. That's pretty tough, but God can do that. And then he said, bloodshed will come. Loss of life. Attacks but ultimately the same as Amos, banishment from your land. Now that's the severer side of Hosea's prophecy, but it's not his main thrust. His main thrust is that God is still faithful. There's a statement in the New Testament uh, about our relationship to Jesus, it's in Timothy, and it says if we deny him or if we disown him, he will disown us. But if we are faithless to him, he remains faithful faithful. That might have been lifted straight out of Hosea. Well, let's look at this last bit. Here's the good news, his compassion for them. Unlike Amos, except for Amos's very final message, this is the real heart of Hosea's word and it's when I read these passages that uh, I am deeply moved by God's faithfulness. I use the three letters of the word God, G-O-D, not quite in the right order. Uh, I'm taking them in the order in which Hosea takes them. God's love for you cannot let you off, cannot let you go and cannot let you down. Let me read some verses to you. First of all about God hanging on to them, sorry, about God punishing them. You see, God can't stand their professions of repentance. And God says, I will tear Ephraim and Judah as a lion rips apart its prey. I will carry them off and chase all rescuers away. I will abandon them and return to my home until they admit their guilt and look to me for help again. Because as soon as trouble comes, they say, come, let us return to the Lord. It is he who has torn us, he will heal us, he has wounded, he will bind us up in just a couple of days or three at the most, he will set us on our feet again to live in his kindness. Oh, that we might know the Lord, let us press on to know him and he will respond to us as surely as the coming of dawn or the rain of early spring. I've read that in a sarcastic tone of voice because that's how it should be read. This is God saying, that's the kind of thing you say, Oh, Ephraim and Judah, what shall I do with you? For your love vanishes like morning clouds and disappears like dew. I sent my prophets to warn you of your doom. I've slain you with the words of my mouth, threatening you with death. I don't want your sacrifices. I want your love. I don't want your offerings. 
I want you to know me. Can you feel God's heart in that? That's the love that cannot let them off. He's got to punish them. But now listen to this. When Israel was a child, I loved him as a son and brought him up out of Egypt. But the more I called to him, the more he rebelled, sacrificing to Baal and burning incense to idols. I trained him from intimacy, infancy. I taught him how to walk. I held him in my arms. But he doesn't know or even care that it was I who raised him up. Oh, how can I give you up? my Ephraim, how can I let you go? My heart cries out within me, how I long to help you. No, I will not punish you as much as my fierce anger tells me to, for I am God and not man. I am the Holy One living among you, and I didn't come to destroy. You sense that? You can't read this without emotion. And here's his final appeal, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have been crushed by your sins. Bring your petition, come to the Lord and say, O Lord, take away our sins. That's the kind of prayer he wanted, not the prayer, oh, he'll get us out of trouble, but O Lord, take away our sins. Plenty of people cry to God when they're in trouble, but they don't ask him to take away the cause of the trouble. See? Be gracious to us. O Lord, in you alone the fatherless find mercy. Then I will cure you of idolatry and faithlessness, and my love will know no bounds. O Ephraim, stay away from idols. I am living and strong. I look after you and I care for you. I am like an evergreen tree, yielding my fruit for you throughout the year. My mercies never fail. Then it finishes with a statement. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. And whoever is intelligent, let him listen. For the paths of the Lord are true and right, and good men walk along them. But sinners trying it will fail. That's one of the strongest appeals that is in the whole of the Bible to people who don't want to know about God's love. So let's just uh, look finally at the application of this. How do we apply Amos and Hosea today? There is one huge difference between our situation and that to which they spoke and prophesied. And we need to think this through very carefully. In Israel, the church and the state were one and the same thing. It's what we call a theocracy. And to be born into the state was to be born into the church and vice versa. It was one and the same thing. The people of God were the same as the state. That does not apply in the New Testament. In the New Testament, church and state are separated. And that may be summed up by Jesus' words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And so in a sense, we now live in two kingdoms, 
I am a citizen of the United Kingdom according to my passport. I am also a citizen of the Kingdom of God. They are not one and the same thing. Therefore, we have to be rather careful applying prophecies of the Old Testament to a secular state today. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, we suffer from the complication of the fact that since the Emperor Constantine, Europe has tried to combine church and state, tried to create Christendom in which the Kingdom of God and the Kingdoms of men are one and the same thing. Uh, so that to be born into England is to be born into the church. And we have centuries of an established Christianity behind us. Actually, that may well probably cease in the near future. Uh, the longest word in the English language is back on the agenda, anti-disestablishmentarianism. And we may well see the separation of church and state in the next 10, 20 years, could easily happen. And then we would be back in a more New Testament position. Now, when therefore we see these prophecies, which Amos and Hosea applied to both church and state together, we can't just take that and throw it at our government. That's rather important. The pattern, I believe, is this. What God said through these people to the non-people of God can be used as a prophecy to the government. Do you follow me? The inhumanity, the riding roughshod over human rights, the legislation that makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. There are a whole lot of things in there that we can apply validly, but we must not expect the government to try and make people Christian by law. God has higher standards for his people than he has for others. And it's a delicate line. I think the Sunday trading issue is a classic case in point. Uh, we can agitate for keeping Sunday special on a humanitarian basis, but not on a Sabbatarian basis. Do you follow me in this? And so when we read these prophecies, I'm afraid some people are too eager to take all of Amos's warnings and throw them at John Major. I think you've got to be careful about doing that. He's not a believer, incidentally, and at the moment we have a very great shortage of Christian leaders. Uh, but we shouldn't try and expect them to establish Christian standards. But there are moral standards which are known to the conscience of humanity which we can expect and can agitate for. So I'm, I'm just saying this. In other words, these prophecies ought primarily to be applied to the church. And that's where our prime prophetic message should be. I fear that it's much easier for Christians to point out to the world and say what wicked people you all are. Very easy to do that. But in fact, I believe that the prophetic word is more needed inside the church than outside right now. And that if the church were what it ought to be, that would begin to clean the nation up. But I'm afraid we're getting known as a church that's all muddled up inside and trying to put everybody outside right. Well, be careful. When we read prophecies, we do see an amazing reflection of our society out there. But judgment begins at the house of God. And we've got to put these things right inside.
before we start trying to tell the world. And frankly, it's ridiculous to be telling the world to read the Bible by a man who's not even living by it himself. See, that's where the world sees the hypocrisy of the whole thing and they see through it. And when that knowledge is common as it was in the papers last week, the world says, ridiculous. And they despise a people of God who don't practice what they preach. So let us, when we read the prophecies, apply them to the people of God first and get our own house in order. Then we are in a position to say to society, God condemns you for your inhumanity, for your insensitivity to human beings created in his image. That's just a word I felt I ought to add. I think Graham Kendrick's best song of all and the most prophetic he's written and thank God for a hymn writer today. We've got plenty of chorus writers. He's writing some contentful (coughs) hymns but I think his most prophetic and his best hymn begins... O Lord, the clouds are gathering. Do you know that song? It's a song for the people of God. And that song reminds me very much of Amos who says, Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to your music, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. It's too easy to throw that at the world Let justice and righteousness flow like a river inside the church, among the people of God. That's where it must begin. And we need prophets. And thank God for Amos and Hosea, who went to a foreign land to them, where they would not be acceptable. And they preached the truth, fearlessly and lovingly. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.